Welcome to episode 26 of the Needle Movement Podcast. Today, our very special guest is Rick Watson, and the topic is Shopify and marketplaces. And a couple episodes back, I discussed Shopify Reunite and getting into the, the near future direction of the platform. And Rick is just the perfect guy to continue that conversation. Because in e-commerce, we all know it, disruption is inevitable. Instinct-wise, we got to stop being surprised by change and just learn about things as quickly as we can. So the key to not getting the rug pulled out from under us is to follow experts who are already looking ahead to what e-commerce will look like later this year in 2021 and beyond. Rick is one of those guys I follow to keep tabs. And lately he has been on a tear on LinkedIn. He's one of those people that he'll post something new about Shopify or marketplaces. And then like a day later, that post blows up. There's 60 comments coming and And these comments are not just coming from kids. They're coming from people that run brands, industry leaders who are very engaged with what he is saying. Really glad to have some time to dive in with Rick about where e-commerce is headed next. I'm Stephen Carl, talking to you straight from Silverthorne, Colorado. Last week, I drove cross country. Just wanted to get a little bit of a break from the Brooklyn and city quarantine. So it's really been nice to be in the sunshine and have a little bit more space. We're going to do a few shows from here. Let's dive in with Rick and get on with the show. It is great to have you, our next guest for the podcast. Really excited to have him on, Rick Watson. I'll give him a, do a quick bio before we get into more detail. Rick is the CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting, a boutique strategic e-commerce consultancy based in New York City. And he provides advice and guidance to firms across e-commerce, primarily in the areas of direct-to-consumer operation, build-out for investors in the C-suite, B2B marketing for software and service firms, and strategy regarding e-commerce marketplaces. Whoa, that was a lot to <laughs> a lot to say. But Rick's been in the business for a long time. Was really excited to have him on because we're going to get to nerd out especially on Shopify. So welcome to the show, Rick. Thanks so much, Stephen. I'm really happy to be on and talk to your audience today. I was looking forward to having you on because I think your perspective is is really cool because a lot of us who are in the Shopify ecosystem, whatever we're doing, whether we're a store, agency provider, we have that tunnel vision of getting success for our individual store and how to get there. And I know that I feel like just from you know following you and talking to you that you actually do have that 40,000 foot view that you're looking at e-commerce just from a macro and seeing all these platforms and the strategic moves they're making. You know, I thought you would bring a really right. good perspective here. No, I appreciate that. I think part of it is this growing up in the industry a little bit and being able to see kind of the ups and downs. Like when you just come into the space, you assume it's sort of always been like this. And so once you've spent a little bit of time in the space, I would say at least over five to seven years, Mm -hmm. you start to want to figure out why things are the way they are. At least that's kind of how my brain works. So So how did you get started in business and in e-commerce? Yeah. So I'm originally a software developer. So growing up, all I ever wanted to do was sort of write code. And e-commerce was never, obviously, was on really no one's radar for a long time. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the first jobs out of school as I hooked up with the entrepreneurs and people that founded the Channel Advisor Corporation, which is one of the original pioneers of helping yes. brands and resellers on the eBay and Amazon marketplaces. And this was, I met the original team, I would say back in 98, but they weren't actually doing it then. But at the end of 99, I actually joined them. And this is when basically right at the point eBay started to blow up. Like Meg Whitman had mm -hmm. just started at eBay and the thing was starting to go like a rocket. And Channelvisor mm -hmm. really just sort of grabbed onto that tail of eBay and said, doing business on marketplaces is going to be a thing. It's not just going to be about people trading to each other. And that was one of the key insights behind Channelvisor that was at least five years ahead of where everyone else was thinking. And so within that crucible over the next 10 years that I spent at Channel Advisor, first writing software for the mm -hmm. platform, talking to hundreds, if not thousands of sellers that are on eBay and like, oh, here's this Amazon thing. They have a marketplace now too. What does it mean? It's like, as these things started to develop, you start to understand what makes them successful and not. So that, that was the earliest part of my career is really deciding to stay in a, in a space that to me, it was so fascinating just because of all the players involved, how much growth you were seeing, and how much fun it was to work with all these entrepreneurs that were bringing their businesses online and, and into the e-commerce space. Yes. And so with Channel Advisor, I'm familiar with them because I was wined and dined by Channel Advisor many years ago. And I remember <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we might have been in the same room at a few years back. So the offering really is a marketplace strategy where... If I'm selling direct to consumer and then I want to be selling on eBay, Amazon, Walmart, and other stores, then Channel Advisor makes it, sets up the APIs and creates the data flow so that that can happen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. From there, I moved to New York City and I was actually recruited to head up the third party marketplace at barnesandnoble.com. I would say in the middle of the like right after Kindle was introduced is mm -hmm. kind of place this in, in Amazon history and Barnes and Noble was investing a lot in e-commerce, which they hadn't done for a lot of their career. They were kind of behind the eight ball a little bit compared to Amazon. They had, the, they had the nook, right? Yeah. They had the nook at the time. And that was the big thing. And they kept going back and forth. Essentially they were rebuilding their e-commerce site to improve. I think they recognized that compared to other sites like Amazon, they had a big assortment challenge they had kind of two main challenges. Number one is that they had this massive fulfillment facility, mm -hmm. this warehouse that could only ship things that were shaped the size of books. So that was sort of problem one. Problem two is <laughs> they, their buyers didn't have any assortment compared to other sites that are online that had good dropship or marketplace programs. So my mission was basically to help Barnes & Noble expand in categories that were not books. So we chose a number of categories that were related to the brand, but not mm -hmm. books. So things like toys and games, home and garden, gifts, electronics, things that, you know, if you've been to a Barnes & Noble store in the last 10 years, they do have some of this non-book product in there. It's, it's actually about a third of their mm -hmm. you know, square footage is not books. But none of that stuff was online. So that was kind of their mission. And really what I was there to execute is like a, basically a focus strategy to get the site live, get the marketplace live in about six months, which we did. And then over the next six months, we added probably over a million and a half SKUs to the catalog through the merchants that we onboarded, one of which was Wayfair. 
if you can believe it, we actually recruited <laughs> Wayfair to the site, which was to me the biggest coup we had at the time. Okay, so in terms of, uh, have we completed your origin journey? Uh, there's a couple more, but we don't have to belabor the whole thing. I ran an e-commerce startup in New York City that was venture-backed called Merchantry, which mm-hmm. helped retailers and brands build marketplace solutions on their own, like in a mm-hmm. private and a sort of white-label marketplace way. And we ended up selling that about three years later. And then I actually ran the product team at Pitney Bowes, which was involved in their global e-commerce offering which really offered two different things. One is for large retailers like Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom's, mm-hmm. for instance, they would offer cross-border services, mostly supply chain and payment services for American retailers that were trying to sell to buyers in foreign markets. Mm-hmm. And then Pitney Bowes, interesting and another connection to eBay and marketplaces, Pitney Bowes actually powers the entire eBay global shipping program. So if you go to the eBay sell your item form or in channel advisor or any tool and you say, oh, I just don't want to ship to the US. I want to ship to a hundred markets around the world. You can check a box and then mm-hmm. an item will go from your facility to a crosstock facility in Kentucky, which is run by Pitney Bowes, and then they will handle everything having to do with and all the intermediate and last mile to the consumer. Uh, they handle all those things. So those were all the things that I did uh, before kind of founding my own consulting business about a year ago. So how do you like uh, life on your own now or in your own consulting? It's great. I enjoy it a lot because I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy helping people. So that very much fits with my personality. It lets me learn new things and give back Mm -hmm. to people, contribute things like publishing new content and getting the word out there. It's all been super exciting for me. Excellent. Yeah. And I think we met a year, year and a half ago. And it's been exciting to connect with you on LinkedIn. And I've even noticed (laughs) just over the past few months that I would consider you now a LinkedIn influencer <laughs> if you want to add that to your titles, but it's uh, but I just noticed some of your posts now are... It's a scary term. <laughs> I think for LinkedIn, it's good though, because like I see some of your posts where 50 people are commenting and there's like 160 people liking or you know finding it insightful. So it's a lot of feedback. So asking for a friend, right. how did you build your LinkedIn following? Yeah, it's a good question. To start with, I always really liked LinkedIn. And I think it was founded in 2004 or something. And I actually had an account very early. Mm -hmm. So I would say I've always been pretty diligent about trying to maintain my network. But I think when I started my own business, I really, I would say my LinkedIn journey has three stages. One Mm -hmm. is Oh, it's just a resume. It's just an online resume, right? That's kind of one. And then usually when you do that, right after that, you say, oh, I'm only going to add people on LinkedIn if I've met them in person and I (laughs) I care about them or if I know them very well, right? Because I don't want random, like who wants random people as as contacts, right? It doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. to anyone. And I'd say in the last year, so when I started my business, I had a couple of thousand contacts. And it's really over the last year moving, I would probably say I have more than 5x my LinkedIn network in a year mm-hmm. from a couple of things, just constant publishing right? and then just being open to connect to anyone. And the way I look at LinkedIn now, it's no different than an email marketing list in some sense. There's almost no downside for me making a connection to a new person because then that means they get to learn more about me if they follow me over time. And they don't have to listen. They can shut me off. They can unconnect. It won't offend me at all. But if they do find something I write 
interesting, then maybe we'll work to, maybe there's something I can help them with. Maybe there's something that they can help me with in the future and we can work together in some way. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Good tips. Yeah. I think the, yeah, the constant publishing or just the, just having a schedule, like how many times a week do you post on LinkedIn? Every, every day I post. Right. So five times a week. Yeah. And you just set that up in advance. And I think that having, being out there a lot can definitely multiply your results. And you're really, are you focused on other channels outside of LinkedIn or is this, or is LinkedIn your primary? So I started with LinkedIn, like when I first, first started the business, I was doing LinkedIn, I was doing Twitter and I was doing blogging. And I saw pretty quickly in less than a month that LinkedIn was 80% of the traffic. I'm like, well, as a solo entrepreneur, I'm all about the 80-20 rule. And so I kind of switched to, I don't care about this other stuff. I'm just going to focus on LinkedIn and grow, like really be good at LinkedIn. And so that's, that's kind of where it's evolved. This year I've added email mm. and added an email newsletter and I'm actually, I redid my website and I'm starting to publish more content on my website because mm-hmm. I think SEO is like something I need. So I'm just kind of getting the basic owned media assets, you know, for the company there as much as possible and not leaving any of that behind, which I would say it's not easy, but it's the easier stuff. Like it's all in your control. You just need to do it. You know, you either need to publish every day or write and make it a habit. Well, LinkedIn's nice because at least the organic traffic that you get that when you send a message, not a hundred percent, but you're getting a solid percent of the people you're connected to who will see that message, which is much better than other social media. Yeah. It's much better than Facebook, for instance. Yes. (laughs) Much better. Exactly. People don't realize... Yeah, the organic reach on Facebook and other social. But um, I will definitely link to your newsletter and to your LinkedIn in the show notes as well. Um, so let's get on to Shopify. And uh, you know, there was the annual conference happened a little while ago. So we have all those announcements and we're just letting them marinate in our brains and figuring out what's coming next. But um, with Shopify, you know, what is one thing that Shopify does well that most people don't understand? Wow. It's a good question. I think I wrote about this recently. I don't think they care if they have all the options that anyone could ever want in the universe. Right. I think e-commerce for a lot of the history has been dominated by a lot of custom sites, a lot of custom configurations, etc. And so Shopify, they're taking advantage of the rise of sort of the cloud and mm-hmm really saying is, this is 80% of what you need to succeed. And we're going to do it really fast. And we're going to do it for a relatively low price compared to what you used to be able to do this five and 10 years ago. So I love the analogy that Shopify is the platform of good enough. And Mm -hmm. they've kind of (laughs) married that with a pace of innovation that has really been surprising in the past four or five years, right? If you think of like, what did you think of Shopify five years ago? And my answer would be almost like this Ruby on Rails toy site, right? Mm -hmm. And informed or uninformed, that's what I thought. Nobody would say that today. Like even four years ago, I would say like, could Shopify run a reasonable not a f- like Walmart or something like that, mm-hmm. but an enterprise-ish website? No, not even close. I would say there are less than 20% of brands that probably couldn't run their site on Shopify if they really tried. They may not get all the features that they want, and there might be some business models that it doesn't support, but for a lot of the mainstream categories, it works pretty well. Yeah, I think they responded really well to that problem 
smaller platforms can succeed their way out of business because once the customer makes their first million, they're like, oh, great. You know, now I need a better platform. So buy Shopify. And like Plus was really a very effective strategy to retain those customers that they were losing due to the customers growing. You know, and even I'm having like a Kylie Jenner who is, I don't even know how much money is going through that site right now, but it's just an example of saying that you don't have to be on Demandware, you can be on Shopify. Yeah, exactly. And you can stand up a site in two, in a weekend, and maybe it won't be integrated to every enterprise system you've ever had, but you'll be transacting and it'll be running. Yes. And I feel like good enough is, I like that terminology. It's because just having been on a lot of other platforms, I feel like your pains, I mean, no platform is perfect. We all swear at them occasionally, but what I'm swearing at Shopify for, it's like my business is running. It's running, it's prospering. I think what you're talking about with good enough is sometimes the features don't go all the way. Like I've seen like even with like the, the partner town hall, like fortunately they have agencies that like developing on it and can do the rest a lot of times, right, with these integrations, you don't always know how far they're going to go into specific needs. Right. But because they have such a huge network, there are plenty of options that can solve your problem, even if Shopify's core product doesn't. Yeah. And I feel like in some sense, you're like paying what you don't necessarily see when you first get into it is that you're having to pay an app tax a little bit to be a part of their ecosystem, right? Yeah. It's not going to do reviews out of the box. It's not going to do UGC out of the box. It's not going to have a good email platform out of the box. It's like you can kind of go on down the line and name a dozen or more things that every Shopify new build needs to install with any agency, right? So Yeah, it's like a good example of this. With Shopify Reunite, they announced cross-sells on checkout which is an exciting feature because it's a good feature for people to have. But I was I was at the partner town hall and Chase Clymer was one of the speakers and he's like, he's very straight up. And he was kind of saying, yeah, like it's great that they're having this feature, but people don't think it's going to do everything for you. Like there are other providers who are, who do this all the time, who are probably going to have a much more robust solution. So we're excited, but right. it's good enough. Like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's super interesting. Okay, so how about you're a marketplace guy? So now we're seeing we're seeing Shopify perhaps dabble into this. Do you think Shopify will build a marketplace where all of its stores, just like an Amazon or Etsy, can benefit from, I guess, a network effect of coming to one place? Wow, it's like the million dollar question, or maybe for Shopify, it's a trillion dollar question, depending on how big they get. <laughs> I used to think it was a no brainer. And the logic for them to build a marketplace goes something like this. I already have everything in the platform. Right. And they're already doing everything for me. And so if Shopify showed up one day and said, hey, here's some extra money. Here's an extra $100. And every time we give you this $100, we're going to take 10 of those dollars back. But you're going to have $90. How does that sound? I think most merchants would say, that's a pretty great idea. That's like the ideal vision for the Shopify marketplace, right? It's like your stuff is already there. Shopify is just going to find you traffic and generate you more sales because you're on the platform. Mm -hmm. The double-edged sword of that and what people... Before marketplaces were like, there was only upside, there was no downside. I think after people have been on marketplaces for 10 plus years, they realize marketplaces are their own thing. There's crime on marketplaces, there's fraud on marketplaces... Mm -hmm. 
there's misaligned intentions between the marketplace and the shops. Right. You know, you have marketplaces that are advertising on the same terms that you're advertising on for your hero SKUs, which is mm-hmm. not really great because what does that mean? They're driving up your ad prices. That's not great. And they're doing that on the back of money you're paying them for your main store. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. ask them to build a marketplace. I just asked them to run my store. So that's kind of one class of reasons why it's not as merchant-friendly to build a marketplace. The second reason it would be not merchant-friendly for Shopify to build a marketplace is it immediately sets a merchant competition. And so you're competing with all the other brands on Shopify. So imagine someone types in any term. Where the rubber meets the road is who determines who shows up first. Right. And once you start down the path of a cross-merchant product-oriented search, you are on the Amazon path. Like There's no off-ramp to the story. You know where it's going to end. It's going to end in advertising to show up. It's going to end in mm-hmm. Shopify, Marketplace, SEO. You know, it, All the things are going to come because they'll have scale to make it happen. But you also get into the be careful what you wish for point of view. Shopify right now, by and large, is sort of a pure application and ecosystem that is working for the merchant. As soon as they build a marketplace, they're not working for you. They're working for the buyer, really. And that's Mm -hmm. what most of the decisions that people don't like on Amazon are actually, they're because the marketplace is working for the buyer, really, and not you as a seller or a merchant. So how about their, have they made moves into marketplace? I was thinking of Shop App as one example as of something that they just launched. Yeah, Shop App is the closest thing they've done. And I just placed an order on Shop App. Yeah, what they did was clever in that they they started with a problem that everyone had, which is kind of Wismo or notifications on orders with the Arrive app, right? And they launched that whatever last year, a couple of years ago, something like that. So the Shop app came from Arrive. That's right. And that's what I heard. And that's there's right. about 16 million people that already downloaded it. So it has a following already. But is that Shopify's app, Arrive, that was rebranded or something, someone else? They just rebranded. And I know that because I was using Arrive for whatever, a couple of months. And one day, it just became Shop. <laughs> okay. So what it means is that they already had this built-in user base and they just changed the functionality. Where the Shop app does is... It still tracks purchases, which it did before, which is nice. It also lets you browse stores you've already bought from before. Mm-hmm. The most marketplacey thing it does actually seems like a hackathon feature. If you listen to Toby and mm-hmm. Harley, they said that's where this feature came from, like post-COVID, was you can search for products that are around you that are using Shopify POS. So like stores in your neighborhood that are using Mm -hmm. Shopify as their POS system, you could find them, which is interesting and and it's marketplace-like. So they are taking some steps in this universe. And what they have said publicly is that this app is all about improving the customer lifetime value on behalf of the brand so that it becomes almost like a loyalty and a remarketing program for the brand. That road doesn't end in a marketplace necessarily. It could end in something unique that's not a traditional marketplace. Yeah, it does feel like the latter, that it's a good retention tool because it has shop pay, Mm -hmm. so faster checkout. It has the order notifications, makes it easier to like get everything in one place. And then it has that, the carbon neutrality, so it's appealing to sustainable consumers as well. 
as an extra perk. Okay, so if Shopify doesn't build a marketplace, what else do you think they should do? Ah, uh, what else should they do? So I think B2B is an obvious one. It's a massive market that they're underinvesting in. Like wholesale or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wholesale. It's actually, wholesale is one of the biggest complaints between Shopify merchants. Yeah. Because they just don't, the yeah. solution they have. So I think that's one. Yeah. So going into B2B further. They bought a company a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think they bought a company a couple of years ago called Handshake, but I don't think they've reinvented it to mm-hmm. this point. So I think that's a big area. I think returns is still sadly underinvested, not just in Shopify, but in all e-commerce platforms. The returns process is just terrible out of the box, such that you're forced to hire Mm -hmm. all these third-party apps to make it a decent returns experience. There is no returns experience out Mm -hmm. of the box. It's not branded. It's not customizable. You can't generate a label. You have to hire someone else to do all those things. It seems like with the priority of returns for businesses and customer experience, it feels like a miss. Mm -hmm. That's probably another area I I would say they need to go deeper in. Gotcha. Sorry, gotcha. returns companies. <laughs> well, I mean, returns just kill revenue. So it's it's definitely an area of interest for the merchant to find something better in the process right. and also just figuring out what went wrong. Yeah, merchants want no returns. Zero returns. Right, because if, if you're an apparel brand, I mean, you lose like gross revenue and net revenue are so different because of the possibility of returns, especially when it's high ticket items. So let's go big picture on e-commerce. Like, where do you think it's going in the next year or two mm-hmm. in regards to Shopify and even its competition with other platforms? Like, what should a store know about where it's going? I don't see anything derailing Shopify in the short term. The good thing that they've done is that they've sucked up a lot of oxygen in the room such that they are in, an, in every RFP and they're a default choice for a lot of Mm-hmm. Particularly definitely digitally native brands, but increasingly other brands as well. So I don't see anything on the horizon immediately changing that narrative. The momentum they they once a company builds up this kind of momentum, it's somewhat hard to de- derail because it's based on the usage and it's based on the how quickly it is to get going and it's based on the cost of ownership and it's based on how quickly they innovate. Some of that stuff these other companies can't do anything about unless Shopify makes a mistake. You know what I mean? The only thing that could change a Shopify narrative very quickly would be downtime. Yeah, I guess the, and the, the networking effects of even with, when I'm looking at marketing solutions now, more and more I see Shopify only solutions where yeah. it's like, if you want to get this solution and they're good solutions, so they just deeply integrate into Shopify right. and it makes it more challenging for other platforms because if this solution was made for Shopify, then even if there is a better solution out there, then you got to do all this research to find it. So there's so much that kind of, even though they right. don't build it themselves and it's a good enough platform, the providers or the third parties who aren't just apps are big companies now are providing good solutions. No, for sure. And I, I think you make a good point and everyone sees you know, everyone is, knows the Jeff Bezos Amazon flywheel now, or has at least heard of it, right? You have more sellers, more buyers, you can re- get lower prices, you can get more selection, and those things feed on each other. Shopify has its own flywheel that it has built already, and it is picking up speed. And it, some of it has to do with the app ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Some of that has to do with their rate of in- innovation. Some of it has to do with their agency partners and their level of customizability 
such that if you're going to take, I mean, I'm going to use a ridiculous example. If you're going to take the same exact functionality and IBM WebSphere and Shopify, and you give that same project to two different agencies, one's going to charge you, let's say $150,000, and one's going to charge you three quarters of a million dollars to do the same mm -hmm. exact thing. Right. And so the fact that agencies can make their prices cheaper because Shopify is so easy to customize and easy because it has limitations in what it, you can customize and the themes that you have, right? It reinforces that total cost of ownership message and makes it more likely for a merchant to choose them. Let's go to just a hypothetical. Why not <laughs> with um, a Shopify sure. brand? You know, let's just say that because I'm, I'm kind of interested in this the DTC versus marketplace, because I think that marketplaces are becoming more and more of more popular that people aren't just going to go to my website. People are going to, people like yeah. my product in another place, they're going to go. So with brands, it, it becomes a much more holistic strategy besides I got to have the greatest website, you know, on the earth. So let's just say you have, you know, let's pick a Shopify brand with a million dollar in sales mm -hmm. that makes awesome yoga pants or awesome yoga apparel. So they have a million dollars in sales on their DTC site. Where should their priorities be in terms of between DTC, Amazon, Walmart, and even new channels of exposure on social media? In some sense, the industry, GMV, tells a story here. And by that, I mean, Amazon is far and away the next one. They are capturing over 50%, some numbers I've seen, sometimes over 80% of all e-commerce growth in North America wow. every year. So mm -hmm. it's a big number and it's hard to ignore Amazon, except if you're the biggest brand, not like Nike or somebody like that. You need some kind of Amazon strategy, even if your products aren't there. It's becoming a place where you kind of need to advertise too, because people are looking there for you. So that's, I think that's the one I think other marketplaces, a lot of times it depends on your category. You know, if you're in fashion, you should be looking at Poshmark and different places like that. They're electronics. Mm -hmm. So they're category-specific sites. I think Walmart is still there. It's not nearly the size of Amazon Market. Amazon Marketplace is a monster. Comparatively, Walmart Marketplace is a fraction. And so when you ask the average merchant, like, what is your channel breakdown for non-DTC? Amazon is always the biggest one. and then you start to hear eBay, and then maybe you'll start to hear Walmart, and then kind of everything else. And everything else includes maybe a Pinterest shop, or if you're a celebrity, mm -hmm. and you have fashion and beauty-oriented products, then maybe Instagram shop will show up here, because you have these rabid fans that will just buy anything you put down. You mentioned Kali Cosmetics. They're putting mm -hmm. a lot of GMV through that channel, a lot of sales through that channel that you would never expect, right? just four years ago, for instance. You know, those are the top ones that come to mind. Obviously, cross-border international is, you know, particularly yes. for US brands. UK, Australia, probably being the first two because they're English speaking, but... I was going to say with cross-border, you can kind of, you can do your 80-20 rule on your cross-border as well. Yeah. Canada is obviously a big one before that, yeah. but... Where you can identify a few countries to get it. But I've seen that too, where, you know, brands... They have their success with DTC and then they get more into like, oh, I'm going to sell in Canada, UK, where I'm seeing mm -hmm. traffic naturally coming. Right, right. And I guess like um, there was a recent announcement about Walmart and Shopify. They just had an integration. Um, we're kind of 
snickering a little bit because it's integrated. It's quote unquote integrated, but I think there's probably a lot of custom work if you really wanted to build on that strategy of going into Walmart. It's it just seems like it's more of Shopify signaling that they're right. interested in that audience and vice versa. From my experience, especially having worked at a number of marketplace integration companies, mm-hmm. you know, I was at Channel Advisor in, I don't know, was it 2003, where Meg Whitman announced that they hired Accenture to basically build this automatic connection to eBay. You would never need a third-party integrator. And it took about two years for it to fail. And the reason is these marketplaces are not really software development companies. They're good at marketing and they're good at merchandising, but they're really bad at integration. A lot of times you see these announcements for integration tools and they're like, oh, well, this is really great. Like, yeah, it's really great for Walmart if they can get it to work. But (laughs) merchants already had how many different marketplace integration technologies are out there? Like a dozen. I think it's more telling that Walmart thinks that Shopify is important enough to address, not the other way around, if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense. Well, I think, yeah, like Walmart is looking for a couple of wins after they purchased ModCloth. They sold it, I think not well, and even Bonobos. And then they closed down Jet.com. Right. And maybe they're looking for a win. Yeah. And look, I do think Walmart is smart to invest in a partner ecosystem because it makes things easier for merchants. So the more third-party platforms that you can connect to, the easier you can make it. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. You know, this makes me think a lot about websites as well and how, like, I I remember that term website redesign, (laughs) which frightens some people (laughs) in the industry because of how long these redesigns can take. But I've noticed, I feel there's a different vibe over the past maybe few years that redesigns are not as important. Like not everyone is going to the DTC store and it's not the end all be all. Right. But yeah, what do you think of the DTC website? Do you think it's less important than it was a few years ago or just has a different, like a different lens on what, how you should handle your website? It kind of goes back to our discussion of own media a little bit. It's the only thing that's fully in your control. And everyone needs a brand showcase mm-hmm. that leverages your full assortment. And like, for instance, like, let's say you sell your products to Macy's and you make a hundred products. Macy's is never going to buy you know, all hundred of your products. And so you need a place to really showcase what your brand is about. And consumer research will tell you that even if someone is searching on Amazon, they're also searching Google to find out what does the brand say about themselves? How can I, if I'm really right. interested in this brand... How can I find out more information about them to really dive under the covers and determine if this is a good purchase for me or not? Which may not be the case for like low consideration purchases, but for sure, the more considered your item is, the more and more important I think your brand website is. Yeah, I once heard the website is the temple of the brand. That is where to get the DNA, you have the website should tell that story. I guess I feel like the website is kind of like it's the sort of the mothership. And now yeah, there are more it's colonies. Like a hub. Yeah, it's like a yeah. hub, but there's more like there's more colonies that are being built in other places yeah. that have to be imprinted. If you have an Amazon store, which means basically means e-commerce is getting harder. It's getting much harder. <laughs> <laughs> right, because there's not one place to there's not one touch point. The touch points are getting between, yes, I think that's where it's harder right. because there's so many more channels 
and there's more places yeah. where you can sell your product. No, that's right. right. And, and I think in theory, that's actually good for somebody like a Shopify because it means you still need a hub and spoke model if we're going to stay on that analogy for a second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that you have a full representation of your brand, then you're going to say like, okay, there are 10 other places beside this mothership that I want to be. What do I want to send to these various places to represent my brand, depending on what types of consumers are in each place? That's kind of how I think about it. Right. Well, I think with all the media, just the presentation of the brand is different. So the website is that the best version of that. And then... Right. You know, like Shopify just did that initiative, Facebook shops, where you can put a microsite inside right. of Facebook. Yeah. So you want it to emulate the website, emulate, you know, Facebook shops emulates what's on the website, but it's not the same. Right. It's like your website, but it's a little bit different because Facebook, you can only put certain, maybe certain types of products on there. And there's mm-hmm. a different audience on Facebook than yep. there might be on Instagram, than there might be on Amazon. And so particularly if you're in different categories, brand might look a little different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I think with Shopify, their credit is that they didn't just see themselves as website builders, that they, you know, got into some of these things like, you know, now they're doing finance for entrepreneurs, (laughs) like Shopify balanced their big announcement. And it was just because, or POS, like they did a lot of things that, you know, you're like, oh, I thought they were just doing a web engine. And it really has become much more than that. Okay, great. So, so wrapping things up, if people like what you're saying, how can they reach you? Easiest way is on LinkedIn, as you mentioned, just search for Rick Watson and e-commerce and I'll probably come up uh, somehow. Uh, another way is my website, rmwcommerce.com. Those are probably two of the best ways. Excellent. So tell us about your newsletter. I know that was a, I actually saw your newsletter linked on another e-commerce site and I was excited. So it's gaining momentum, but what's your newsletter about? Yeah, so my newsletter, it's, there's no specific format. It's, it's really just me trying to get in touch with people once a month that like to follow my kind of thoughts on LinkedIn. And I'm like, you know what? LinkedIn isn't going to let me own these people forever. I better start building my own asset. So take <laughs> right. some of my own advice. At some point, I'm sure LinkedIn is going to charge me to access <laughs> people who want to hear something from me. So let me get ahead of that. And it's really a way for me to get out a little bit more longer form content about e-commerce and marketplaces and in a way that is hopeful, maybe a little bit funny sometimes, a little bit irreverent, hopefully also at least teaches you something. So last month, I came up with this idea of, we all know the idea that I think in religion, there's this idea of seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what if there are seven deadly sins of marketplaces? Like if you are building a marketplace from scratch, what are the seven things you don't want to do? I actually published that on my newsletter last month. I just give you some idea of oh, that sounds- what are the things that you don't want to do if you're if building a marketplace from scratch? Yeah. And I think the fact that you're looking ahead on some of these things, because a lot of times there's just, you know, we just know how much disruption there is because now just really every quarter with all the announcements that are coming from technology platforms and we're all just trying to figure it out you know so i really think your your newsletter is a great resource i signed up like i think three weeks ago you know seeing your content it's just stuff that i wouldn't think of because i'm not in that lane but how you're thinking about how marketplaces are going to impact e-commerce and stores and what these you're doing a lot of sharing of the big announcements that these platforms are making that we might not never hear otherwise right because we're not you're looking out for it so it's a a great resource for people to follow we definitely put that in the show no that's great i appreciate it all 
Very cool. Well, great to have you on. I, thanks so much for being on the show, Rick. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Steve. This episode is sponsored by Needle Movement. Before you go, got to mention something new. Right now, we're seeing a huge shift towards conversation marketing channels, SMS, Facebook Messenger, and email marketing. Just think about it. Couldn't your upcoming Black Friday numbers double if SMS and Messenger were enabled? And who said that email is the only channel to push a product drop, announce a sale, or have an abandoned card campaign? Needle Movement provides a done-for-you service to help e-commerce brands unlock six to seven figures of new revenue from their customer base. We'll back that up with an ROI guarantee. Now's the time to get in as conversation marketing is poised for growth. Today, it's Facebook Messenger. We already know that Google, WhatsApp, and Instagram are getting into this space soon. Learn more about conversation marketing by visiting needlemovement.com. You can book a call today on the site and we'll estimate the additional revenue opportunity for your brand. And last but not least, be sure to tune in next week for another new episode of the podcast. Podcast.